It's time to think bigger. Elias Pedersen scores! And think bolder. Matthew Kachuk, what a goal! This is Rintoul and Sermon. Another chance, great save by Markstrom. There is shot me back. Great save by Timko. On the Sportsnet Radio Network. What's going on? How's your Friday? Hope you're off to a great start. We're going to make your day better. That's what we do. I want you involved. 960-960-650-650. I was just thinking as I heard the intro, Jamie, I have until, I suppose, about 10 seconds ago to make the choice to opt out here. Now, it wouldn't be very fair to you. It wouldn't be great for Greg. But we all make choices on an everyday basis. It's Friday. Let's go. Let's get everybody to the weekend, all right? Well, thank you for opting in, Scotty. I appreciate it. I appreciate it a lot. I'm glad you do, and it's a nice segue into the announcement that we've all been expecting for quite some time that we got here this morning and everyone thought was going to happen, but now it's official, kind of. The Olympic announcement, we've been waiting on it. It would have been a surprise at this point if we would have been told the NHL is not going to the Olympics, but there are some interesting details in the memo that's been sent to NHL players, including a provision that right up until the point that they actually step on a plane, depending on where COVID's at and anything else that might affect the health and safety of players that are going to make their way overseas to the 2022 games in Beijing, they can pull the plug at any time. It's a really interesting caveat, right? So we're all, I'm I'm excited. I'm amped up because I love to see the NHL players at the Olympics. Let's go. I'm going to start doing my line combinations later today. I can't wait. But it is important to keep in mind, there's a backdoor exit here, right? And if things aren't looking great in terms of COVID, in terms of the health and safety, we could still end up in a situation where there are not NHL players at the Olympics. And there's some dates in there. October 15th, you're going to have national hockey league teams submitting their long lists of players that are going to be or pardon me national teams will contact the national hockey league and say hey here's our long list of players that we're considering for the rosters and i'm sure you've got a bunch as a fan of players in your head that you know are going to be there that you hope are going to be there that you are crossing your fingers depending on your affinity for team canada and whatever your roster holds that might be there you get your long list by then they'll figure it out with the re- resulting associations along the way Players can opt out at any time. That can't be held against them. The IIHF and the federations are going to pick up the insurance cost. Now, that's the regular insurance cost. Another interesting part of this memo, Jamie, there is no COVID insurance, but there is a pot of $5 million that should any player participating be forced to miss NHL games as a result of contracting COVID over at the games, obviously having adhered to the protocols that will be in place from the IIHF, the IOC, and everyone else involved. If you get COVID and you've been doing everything right and you miss NHL games, there's a pot to take care of your money because the NHL is not going to be compensating anybody who goes over to Beijing and ends up coming back with COVID. Yeah, but there is a little, as you said, there's that pot. So if something does go wrong, at least some players will be covered. And, you know, if... If there's a kind of worst-case scenario where there's dozens of players who need it, would that cover everyone? No, probably not. But at least there are some assurances for the players as regards in regards to COVID. I imagine this is a very good day for the players who are involved and those who know they are going or the Connor McDavid's of the world. Hey, I'm going to be on the team as long as I'm healthy. This is a great day. Connor McDavid, Austin yep. Matthews for his team. A lot of these young players, they've never had the chance to do this. They've been waiting on this for quite some time. And as fans of the game, we've been waiting on this for quite some time. 
Oh, we've been waiting for it for a long time. I mean, it's going to be eight years since the last really, truly best-on-best tournament, which was at the 2014 Olympics. And I know the World Cup of Hockey was staged in between there. It was really exciting, but it didn't feel like an Olympics. It didn't feel like a legitimate best-on-best tournament because of, you know, Team North America and Team Europe. Again, fun tournament, exciting, lots of fun, but not a true best-on-best event. It's been a long time coming. We've never had the chance to see Connor McDavid wear uh, the the Maple Leaf at the Olympics. You can go down the list for other players in other countries that haven't had that chance. I can't wait. There are some small details in there. In case you didn't know details, NHL referees and linesmen, they'll be the ones officiating these games, and the games will be contested on NHL ice surface. I think a lot of people did know that as they were building things out in China in preparation for these games, Jamie, but... We're not going to see that international game. It's not going to look like what we saw in 2014 in Sochi on the big ice when Canada suffocated teams defensively and basically said, yeah, we don't have to score that much because you're not scoring at all on us. Yeah, because we're just so good at possessing the puck and keeping you outside and not letting you get anywhere near our net. It worked pretty well. Not the most exciting brand of hockey, but hey, I'll take it if it results in a gold medal. Right, and I think NHL fans, which I think every person listening to us today counts themselves as they will be happy to hear it's NHL ice that the product of best on best will be contested on that surface now there's a couple of just really small details that fall into the category of probably only of interest to me Jamie one of them players have the right to keep the last jersey they wear during competition so you guys can take the other jerseys and sell them who's getting the money for that that maybe just stands out to me That's funny. <laughs> yeah, we got to have those jerseys. I, lo- I just love the idea of that being a sticking point in negotiations <laughs> at some point, right? Fighting over how many jerseys the players are allowed to keep after the Olympics are over. That's amazing. Well, and not to get too far down the political or ethical, moral, whatever category you personally out there want to put it in, rabbit hole. I don't want to go too far down that. And this isn't news because we saw a high-profile sprinter from the United States who was supposed to be at the Olympics not be able to go because of this. But there is the line in there, hey, by the way, players who are going are subject to WADA testing as of October 15th. That might include a few things you're not currently tested for, i.e. THC. We knew this when it came to the Olympic Games. I'm not trying to say there's this big faction of of pot smokers in the National Hockey League. However, I do find it amusing in 2021, this is still a thing that we got to have it on the band list. Yeah, it's wild. It, it really is. And obviously, we're not going to linger on it, but come on. Like, what What are we doing here? Why on earth is it on the band list? It makes no sense at this point. So I wanted to throw this out there to the listeners as well. You brought a story to my attention earlier this week, and we're doing a little bit of research on it behind the scenes. We haven't mentioned it very much on air, but there's a report out there that Things might be a little bit in flux, a little bit up in the air, if you will, with regard to the host entry. Hey, you get the Olympics, you get to put a team in. As you might know, Jamie, China not exactly known for its hockey prowess. No, not a traditional hockey powerhouse. So there's a report out there that we're not quite sure how this is going to go. Is this going to be a team that is competitive at all? Is it better if... China just says thanks, but no thanks. We can't put something together. Is there going to be a provision worked in here where you can have players that aren't on Olympic rosters be invited to play on that Olympic roster, not so that team can win, but so that team can be somewhat competitive and not get embarrassed on home ice? Yeah, because the concern here is, and you know, the reports that are starting to come out, as, and especially now that NHL players are officially going to be allowed to go, is that 
if you put China on the ice against the United States or Canada, you know, the result could be so embarrassing that it would actually set hockey back in China, right? Because the whole purpose of, you know, giving the host team uh, an automatic berth and specifically giving China an automatic berth in this tournament is we want to get eyes on this sport. We want to get eyes on the product. We want to grow the game in China, obviously the biggest country in the world. That's the idea. But if you go out there and lose, you know, and the, the numbers that people are talking about are like 50 to nothing, something like that right now. Would the Canadian team ever let it get to that point? No, probably not. But that presents its own kind of awkwardness, right? If they're just skating around, not even trying to score out there. And if you do allow a result like that to happen, does it completely backfire and actually set hockey back in the country because it's such an embarrassing result? And we're not talking about what we see sometimes at the World Juniors or in the women's international tournaments where it's 13 to 1 or 14 nothing. There are some that fear it could be like 32 nothing. Like Yeah. 45 nothing. That what are we even doing here? Uh, yeah, let's just keep running time and our teams that are playing this iteration of this Chinese team just going to rag the puck so it doesn't get too far out of hand. Like is that what it's going to look like? Again, that report hasn't been completely substantiated. We're working on it behind the scenes. And I want to get the head coach of the team on, Kurt Fraser, former National Hockey League, former National Hockey League head coach. I'd love to hear from his perspective about the yeah. preparations with that team because it'll be an interesting story if they do have an entry, James. Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating story. And I know there are players from uh, Brandon Yep, who I believe is from the Lower Mainland, former NHL player who is, uh, you know, of has Chinese heritage in his background. I, I know he was involved in the program at some point. But right now it seems like it's all up in the air. You know, there are certain double IHF rules about eligibility and when can you play for a country that's not your birth country. And the talk now is, okay, are we going to have to bend those rules significantly to get a lot more, you know, higher caliber hockey players into the Chinese fold. And it's really a fascinating situation. It's something to keep an eye on as, as we start to get closer to the Olympics here. Small hypothetical for you out there in listener land. Put yourself in the shoes of a national hockey league. I'm sure you'd love to do that. That is good, but would never be in serious consideration for team Canada. Hey, you've got a good career. You're a solid national hockey league player. It's not as though you're having to fight for a spot, but you're also not in serious consideration for a Team Canada. If you had the opportunity to go play for the Chinese national team, meaning you can go play in the Olympics, would you take it? Now, Jamie, there will be some that say no chance for political reasons, for ethical reasons. I'm right. not interested in that whatsoever. So it doesn't even have to be the Chinese national team. Think of it as a wild card entry. Think of it as Team North America or Team Europe, as we saw. If you had that chance, you're going to play against Canada. Maybe you're going to play against the States. Would you take that opportunity to play in the Olympics, knowing that you wouldn't have any other opportunity to play in the Olympics? And we've seen this before, right? I remember in uh, in the 2006 Olympics in Italy, the Italian hockey team had a lot of guys, you know, with Italian last names, but who grew up in Canada <laughs> and who grew up playing hockey in Canada. But they had those ties uh, to, you know, to Italy through their family. And they're in the exact situation that you're describing. So we're never, ever going to sniff the Canadian Olympic team. You know, might not even be NHL players, might be AHL or or playing in Europe anyways, but okay, hey, this is a chance to get on an Olympic team. This is a chance to, you know, suit up against the Canadian team and some of the best players in the world. And, 
I'm not surprised that they took that chance. And I, I have to, like, it's this is so far out of any reality I'm living in that it's hard to almost even consider. But I think I would consider it, right? It, it, just for the opportunity, you know you're not going to, you know, upset Canada and prevent them from winning the gold medal, right? So it's not really like you're a traitor. You're just taking this cool opportunity to play in the Olympics. First text that comes in, absolutely, says this texter. I'll take any chance I could possibly to get to tell people I was an Olympian. That's the upside, of course. The downside is being on a team that you have no particular affinity of. Your dream was probably to play for Canada, but that's not going to be a reality. So, yeah, I went and I represented Team China. I got the jersey. I was there. Check the photos. Check the video. That's me. You can get in on that at any time, 960-960-650-650. In the memo as well, Jamie, it says, we don't exactly know what the protocols are going to be. They're still working on that with the IOC. They're still working on that with everybody involved. And we don't know exactly where things are going to be COVID-wise on this planet by the time we get there. The NHL, on the other hand, not messing around this coming season. They came out with their protocols. Elliot Friedman had this last night. The PA has agreed to it. And, Jamie, if you're not vaccinated, life could be difficult in the National Hockey League this year. It's going to be extremely difficult for unvaccinated players, I think. And there's a lot of interesting things going on in these COVID protocols that, you know, haven't been officially announced by the league, but we've, we've you know, insiders have gotten the memo and they, they've been able to go through them and they've been able to report all the interesting details. And I think the kind of headliner is... Okay, if there's some if you're unvaccinated and there is some COVID related reason that you can't be with the team and perform your duties, and that could be, you know, if you contract COVID, if you're a high risk close contact, or something that's really important in the NHL, if you can't go to, let's say, Canada on a road trip for your team or to another jurisdiction in the States that has strict COVID rules, if you're unable to accompany your team there because you you're not vaccinated you're not going to be paid for those days that you're out of the lineup or that you're unable to participate right so those are essentially mini suspensions where your pay is being docked if your vaccination status is disrupting your ability to be with the team that's really really significant again as we talked about earlier in the week scotty when you consider just how often teams do have to come to canada how often teams do have to travel to different venues that could that could really, really affect your standing on the team and affect how much money you're taking home this year, too. There are exceptions within there. Not surprisingly, if you have a conflict with sincerely held religious beliefs, for example, you will not be required to be vaccinated and it won't be held against you. There are provisions in there, but they are few. They are far between, Jamie. And I see this as some sort of hybrid with what the National Football League has done for this year. We've talked a lot this summer about these are pretty strict protocols that the NFL is putting in place here. And the competitive advantage you gain by having a 100% vaccinated team, it's a large one compared to those who aren't. And we're going to talk next hour to Bob Kravitz, who covers the Indianapolis Colts. That's a big question there right now. They've got some high-profile players in particular who don't happen to be vaccinated. So it's a daily conversation. We'll have that and talk some football with Bob next hour. But the NFLPA went out of its way last year to say, or in this past year, I suppose, to say, look, we want to make sure our players have the choice. Let's make sure that they don't have to get vaccinated. It's not mandated. So the NHLPA seems to have gone a step farther here, at least in my interpretation yeah. of Friedman's article, where it's, okay, we can't mandate you get vaccinated, but we're going to push it a lot closer to we also believe you should be vaccinated, and we are down with the rules that make it, so 
advantageous for you to get the jab, and in, in everybody's case, on a couple of occasions, that you're almost forced is a strong word, but you read that, Jamie, and I don't know what other conclusion you're left with if you're an NHL player. Like, you can choose not to, but, man, you are compromising your, your individual situation, potentially your team situation, in a pretty high regard. Well, the pressure to get vaccinated is going to be immense, right? And that, there's, uh, you know, Elliot Friedman has a great piece up on on it at uh, sportsnet.ca. Michael Russo, who's really plugged in, has a piece about it at The Athletic as well. And, for example, one thing that stood out from, to me is this, okay? If physical distancing can't be controlled, like on the team charter, in the locker room, or, or on a team bus, then even fully vaccinated vi- individuals must always be masked for the entire time they are in close contact to an unvaccinated individual. So you just think about what that means. If your entire team is vaccinated, great. You don't have to worry about it in the locker room. You don't have to worry about masks on the bus, on the plane. You basically don't have to worry about masks because you're all vaccinated. But if there's one unvaccinated player, then all of a sudden in all of those situations, which you're in a lot, right? You're in, you spend a lot of time in the locker room, on the bus, on the plane, then all of a sudden that one unvaccinated individual is causing a whole bunch of other people to have to put up with extra rules as well, to have to put up with extra masks, to, to, with wearing masks. Think about the pressure that's going to create on those unvaccinated people, right? Because you are being a drag for your entire team at that point. Now, I also want to point out the estimates that we're hearing are that roughly 95% of the players are vaccinated already. That's awesome. That's a really, really impressive number, especially if you look at the demographics of the league and you compare, you know, okay, people of this age in general society, what their vaccination rate, the NHL players are way, way, way above that. And that's before they've, you know, got to training camp and started feeling the pressure. But if you are one of those holdouts, I think the pressure from your team, from your teammates is going to be huge to get to go ahead and get it. Part of that might just be personal responsibility. Part of that has to do with the incentives that the NHL put in place even last season, Jamie. And we heard Robin Leonard talk about those and his frustrations at the time as to whether or not some restrictions were going to be lifted for those who are vaccinated. Obviously, things have moved in a more positive direction for those 95%, if that estimate is correct, who have already received their jabs. And some of the other rules, they're pretty similar to what we've seen in other leagues. They're pretty punitive when you're on the road, though. If you like to spend time by yourself, and if you really like room service, maybe vaccination isn't for you because that's what you're going to be doing. You can't go to even a hotel gym, a hotel pool or sauna or steam room. You can't go to any any facility that would be open to the general public if you are not fully vaccinated. You can't go to restaurants, right? You can't go out to eat with your team. You can't have teammates into your room with you. You're basically back in last year's situation, which is go back to the hotel, sit in your room, eat room service, and just sit there alone, right? That's going to be the situation. And what have we heard from every player in the league, basically, that we've talked to about what last season was like? They hated it. It was a drag. It sucked. They did not have any fun at all when they were on the road, which is usually one of the best parts of the job, right? Getting to go and hang out with your teammates on the road. That's being taken away from unvaccinated players here. If you're fully vaccinated, every 72 hours you're going to get tested unvaccinated every single day. And maybe you're used to that. Maybe you don't care. I think the numbers are going to dwindle. If it's about 5% that are unvaccinated, that's going to get down in a hurry. Yes, I, I think so as well. It, it, you're, you're exactly right. It's going to, that, that's going to change. This text comes in. If you are vaccinated, why would you worry if someone else in the locker room isn't vaccinated? In theory, you are protected. This is all 
wrong. That is a misunderstanding of vaccination. We've said this time and time again. I don't need to turn this into a political debate here. We are giving you the update from the world of sports. But if you think vaccination means you can't get COVID-19, you got a lot of reading to do at this point, Jamie. Yes, I I couldn't have said it better uh, myself, Scotty. We got some text coming in in TV 960-960 inbox. I was talking about the pressure that the unvaccinated players are going to feel. This texter says, you under you underestimate the selfishness of some people. Some won't feel that pressure at all. I take your point, but I also think when you're surrounded by peers, right, and you're the lone holdout, and you're basically throwing a wrench in everything for everyone else, you have to be pretty oblivious and pretty stubborn to at least not to at least feel some pressure, right? And I mean, especially if you can't accompany your team on road trips to Canada, right? If you're sitting out for extended stretches and not just sitting out, but losing a paycheck for that time, that's that's going to be really, really tough to, I think, maintain holding out when, when your teammates are just going to be saying, hey, what's going on, man? What are you doing here? Who are some of the NHL holdouts, says Stewie? Anyone of significance? I don't know of anyone in particular. There isn't anyone who stood up in the same way that a Cole Beasley, for example, has stood up in the National Football League during the course of the offseason or at least tweeted up during the course of the offseason saying, not for me, not happening, no way, no how. I haven't seen anyone in the National Hockey League go down those roads. No, it, we have not heard anything about that. I mean, look, players are going to be asked uh, when training camp starts here in a couple of weeks, right? And they're doing their kind of beginning of year media availability, availabilities. People will be asked. As as we're saying, it sounds like the vast majority of players have been vaccinated. But I think inevitably, at least at the start of the training camp, you're going to hear some players say, nope, I haven't. And maybe I don't plan to. Now, again, how long will that last? Because we've seen... The rate in the NFL skyrocketed over the course of training camps, right? As the the teams got to talk to them, as other players who have taken the vax got to talk to the holdouts, right? The rate has gone way, 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 way up. So I would expect at least some of the holdouts in that period of, you know, training camp and preseason in the NHL to change their minds and decide to get it. But we are going to hear. We're going to learn at least who some of the players are for sure. The big difference we've seen over the course of the past year, Jamie, when it comes to this, and obviously COVID has progressed and the Delta variant and all of that, but as far as businesses are concerned, in North America, it is now widely accepted that businesses are allowed to demand, private businesses anyway, are allowed to demand certain conditions for you to mitigate risk. And that is widely accepted, which isn't surprising when you consider that no matter where you are, the majority, and, and that majority fluctuates percentage-wise, but the majority of people are getting vaccinated. So there's yeah. no surprise because whether it's governments or whether it's independent teams, they know that the bulk of the population agrees with this stance. Yeah, exactly. And, the, you know, we had this conversation a little bit when it came to women's sports yesterday, Scotty, but ultimately it's it's a business decision. It's a cold-calculating business decision. As you said, the majority falls into the camp who are vaccinated. In some places, it's the vast majority, right? And if you look at a lot of, you know, public opinion polling about things like vaccination passports, they're also generally very popular. So if you're a business and you're trying to entice the most people back to your venue, to your restaurant, whatever it is, of course it makes sense to to go this way. It's Scott Rental. It's Jamie Dodd. You are welcome to get in the conversation at any point in time. There's some other NHL news out there that we are going to get to throughout the course of the show today. 960-960, 650-650. A lot happened. We talked a lot about that soccer match that was contested in Toronto and our anticipation for it. We'll get into that and much more with Arash Madani next right here 
on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. There's always the allure of talented youth when it comes to sports, isn't there, Jamie? Scott Rintoul, Jamie Dodd with you on this Friday, getting you into the weekend on a Labor Day long weekend. We talked about this a lot. Hey, Tyson Nash brought this up. You want to sell hope. Yep. That's a part of it. And that's why we're so hopeful about this Canadian youth movement on the pitch. We haven't gotten into this much today, and I imagine a lot of our listeners watched this game last night. Canada draws 1-1 with Honduras. It's not an abject failure, but it's disappointing that Canada doesn't pick up the full three points here. We know what the challenge is, and this is one of those teams that's in the mix with Canada vying for what we think is that third or fourth spot so that World Cup qualifying becomes a reality for next year. Canada couldn't finish the job at BMO. And we saw, at least in my opinion, both the upside and the downside of the talented youth movement that is leading the charge here, Jamie. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. And, you know, we talked to uh, soccer journalist John Molinaro yesterday on the show about it. And one of the things he pointed out is, okay, look, this team's record since John Herbin took over is really good. But a lot of that comes against the the lesser powers in CONCACAF, right? And not that Honduras is a superpower in the Confederation, but they're one of the better teams. They're a legit, talented side. And I did just think maybe there was a little bit of nerves for Canada all of a sudden kind of in this in the final stage of qualifying, going up against a, a legit opponent. Yeah, you're at home, but still, I, I thought we saw a little bit of sloppiness and a little bit of unease, especially earlier in the game in the first half for Canada. Pretty clear which side has more talent. That's Canada. Canada yep. has more talent last night on that field than Honduras does. But you know what Honduras has? Experience. And they have some guile. And they do things that probably infuriated you as a Canadian soccer fan. But that's all part of this endeavor. And last night was an initiation of sorts. That first half was a real initiation for Canada, which came out of the gates with a lot of bounce in their steps. And they were pushing early. And there's Alfonso Davies down the wing beating players. And there's a lot of excitement. And Honduras then took that match over, at least for the bulk of the first half, and they played it on their terms. And they had Canada running around a little bit. Yes, absolutely. It's a great way of putting it. They And, you know, what did I say yesterday on the show? And I talk, we talked to John Molinero about this as well. Like, I wanted to see Canada come out and really dictate the game. They weren't able to do that in the first half. You're right. There was that early flurry for the first few minutes where it looked like they were going to be able to do it. And then Honduras really took things over. Canada wasn't able to kind of get settled and, and really assert themselves on the game. We saw a little bit more of that in the second half. And I mean, thank goodness they were able to, you know, eke out the draw because I think a loss really, really would have been devastating to Honduras at home. But you're right. It it was a good reminder. Like this is a very, very difficult qualification process that Canada's undertaking here. Canada had the ball for most of the match. Canada had the better of the chances, at least bulk wise than Honduras did yet. It's Honduras that nearly gets the game winner. Great save by Milan Borian. And that goes off the post to get a little help from the woodwork there. Canada certainly could have won that game. There'll be some who wake up today and say, well, they they should have won it, man. That's an unjust result. No, that's the result they deserved last night. 1-1 draw. That's how that should have ended. And hopefully that was an education on what is to come. Yes, exactly. And if you're looking elsewhere, because all the other CONCACAF teams were in action uh, yesterday as well, there's some results that you can kind of interpret either way, right? The U.S. went down to El Salvador, nil-nil draw there. Now, okay, that's great. The U.S. and Canada are tied, right, in the standing, so that's good, but... 
It also gives you an idea of how difficult it's going to be for Canada to go to a place like El Salvador, right? You can't just chalk up a result there if even the U.S. is going down and drawing nil-nil when they go to play there. Well, and here's part of the upside. If you're an optimist, if you're a glass half full coming out of last night, you can see that it's there to materialize, and they're this close, like the Alfonso Davies and the Jonathan Davids, Kyle Aaron even, who scores from the spot last night. Those moments where they just needed that last little touch or that moment of finish, yep. they're there. They're coming, and I don't know if it gets realized in this edition of World Cup qualifying or not, but this isn't the final product. Like This team will grow together, and it's going to get better. And in a lot of these games, they're going to have the most talented player on the pitch, right? In Alfonso Davies, the most dynamic, exciting, talented, high upside player on the pitch. Maybe not every game, right? When you're going up against Mexico or the United States, but that's a tremendous asset. And I do think, you know, I saw some people calling out John Herdman for how he was using Alfonso Davies. I think you're going to see a lot of different looks and lineups and formations from Canada throughout the course of this qualifying. But that's something to keep in mind. If you're looking for those silver linings and those positives, in most of these games, they're going to have the best player on the field. This isn't exactly a scientific way to measure his talent, but how many moments do you count throughout a match or just last night's match? You probably don't have a definite number right now, Jamie, because I'm just springing this on you. You don't always get every replay you want from a broadcast, and you're you're kind of dependent on them to show you. But most people out there have a PVR or DVR, so you can yeah. rewind when you want to. How many moments do you just sit there and go, I got to see that again? Yeah, like exactly. Dave, Wait, what did he just do? Yeah. D- yeah, he did some stupid stuff to people last night. Like, stupid stuff. He is so, so talented. And you could tell from the attention that Honduras was paying him, right? They knew they knew who the most dangerous player out there was and that it was Alfonso Davies. And another metric that I found myself uh, counting, Scotty, was the number of times I, I shouted, give the ball to Davies at the TV, right? Especially later in the match where they're pushing for that winning goal. It's like, if he's open, get him the ball because good stuff happens when he has the ball. Yeah, and he's not perfect. There were moments where he probably should have shot or he probably should have done something a little bit earlier, and it's not like every single ball he plays is perfect, and that's part of the allure that there's more to come with this player who has just exponentially grown as a global athlete before our eyes over the last few years. Arash Madani of Sportsnet knows that and much more, which is why we have him joining us here today. Arash, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? Doing well, Scotty. How are you doing? I am very well. How do you compare Canada men's national team where it's at right now in its growth compared to where we are when our when our group gets together for basketball and tries to go through this process as well i would say the basketball team is actually further ahead because the the foundation pieces for the soccer team davies and david are just getting going they're just really establishing their pro careers whereas there's a little more season and spice to the uh, to, to Team Canada when everybody plays, when you have Wiggins, who's a vet, when you have Olenek, who's a vet. Yeah, the R.J. Bears, the Shea Gilgis-Alexanders are probably where Davies and David are right now in their trajectory, but there's just a little more experience on the basketball side, I would think. I don't want to turn this completely to baseball yet. I do want to talk a little Blue Jays with you because I know how closely you pay attention to that team, and, and I want your insight on them. But if I were to give you a bet right now on either side, Canada to qualify for the World Cup next summer or the Blue Jays to make a run in September and make the playoffs, where would you put your marker? 
Is none of the above an option? <laughs> well, it's a can't lose. I'm giving you a credit, but you have to bet on one of those sides. I guess I'd take the soccer team because they have 13 more games um, to, to do something here, whereas I think the time of the Blue Jays has now run out. Uh, not just because their offense has gone into a slump for the last little while, not just because the math isn't on their side and they have Oakland and two series with the Yankees and two series with the Rays coming up. But the Blue Jays put themselves behind the eight ball with a terrible bullpen for much of the season. And I just never thought they were a playoff team from the jump. Um, I think this is a team that's actually overachieved, to be quite honest with you, um, to be at this, to be in this position at this stage of the season. Arash, just quickly again on, on last night's soccer game, you know, uh, look, I know so many people were so excited for the Canadian team to get to this stage of qualifying, really high expectations for them as well. Look, it's it's only a draw. It's not a loss. It's not a disastrous result. But do you think it was maybe a little bit of nerves at finally being back at this final stage of qualifying? Or is it just a sign that, hey, teams like Honduras, they're, they're a very tough competition in CONCACAF? I just don't think that Canadian team is there yet. You know, I... There, there's this expectation, and I don't know where it comes from, that Canada should be there. I mean, we have not qualified for a World Cup since 1986. Just because there are two star players, young star players on the team, doesn't necessarily make them a powerhouse. I, I actually think this is going to be a program that is that is going to be in great shape when the World Cup is going to be on home soil in 26. I'm I'm not sure that this is uh this is that strong a team right now as constructed. Uh, to me they're in the walk before they run walk before they run stage of affairs. Um I'm not I'm not quite sure this is the finished product quite yet. Is your expectation for this qualifying process then more about the development of the young stars, right? And helping yes. them get the experience in, in this stage? Learn what it takes see what it's all about and if you get in i mean that's that's beyond a bonus and obviously it's a much bigger field that they let in than, than years prior but at this at this point it's you're playing with house money nobody expected them to be in this position and the fact that it's such a long run 14 games or whatever it is that's a valuable experience for a lot of guys who haven't gone through it before Arash, I wanted to ask you about the U.S. Open underway right now as well, and Bianca Andreescu specifically. She advances in straight sets yesterday, which is not the most common occurrence for her. Often she needs that third set to get the job done. But watching her match last night, you know, I thought she showed a lot of patience, which is something she hasn't always shown, right? She just let her opponent make mistakes in, in, uh, in a lot of instances in that match. What did you think of Bianca's performance last night? And, and on top of that, she, she got herself out of some jams which is something that she hasn't done for quite a while. I really like the way you, you put that, that it was patient, because, yeah, she she was facing break points. She was in tough situations. I mean, on paper, the final score, you look at it, four and four, tidy, straight sets. You're saying to yourself, oh, okay, Bianca's back. But that, that, was, a, that was as impressive a win that Andrescu has had in months. And the fact that she was able to manage her way through it get out of some of the difficult situations she found herself in, find some solutions to those, to those issues. I thought that was, that was a real sign of progress for Andrescu last night. 
I agree with that wholeheartedly, Arash. And when I look at the the two matches that she's won so far in this U.S. Open, to me, part of that is she learned from the first match where she was trying to power everything and hit winners all the time and overpower her opponent who just kept putting it back into play and, and let Bianca make the mistakes and push that all the way to the, to the third set, which was tough. But the commonality that I see between the two matches is that when Bianca was down a break in last night, the second set, but earlier this week in the third set, she dialed it in, and she found her best game. She rose to the moment, and that's what she did so successfully two years ago. Yeah, no question. And she's playing with some confidence now. That that was really evident last night, that she's starting to believe that she's back, which is three-quarters of the battle with her. You know, health is obviously the bit, has been the biggest one for the last little while, but there have been some ways, there are some times some of that confidence has wavered. There, there, are a couple of, there are a couple of Canadians, I would just say this, guys, who thrive on the stage of New York under the lights. Bianca's one of them, and Shapovalov is one of them. It's like their demeanor and their game is built for the loud, brash scene that is New York in prime time. Their game is like that, their demeanor is like that, and when they are dialed in, like Dennis and Bianca were last night, you saw what they were made of. Well, and you've covered them for quite some time. Arash Madani joining us here today on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Chapo in particular has grown literally physically since a year yeah. ago. Like you can just see the change in his body. But what change have you seen in him mentally over the past year as well? This guy believes he belongs with the best in the game. And going toe-to-toe with Djokovic in the Wimbledon semifinal taught him something about himself that Oh man, I can do this. Oh man, I belong. I can, I can take it to that level. And you know, Novak's played something like forty-seven Grand Slam semifinals in his career, and that was Dennis's first. I thought Chapo was the better player in the first set, and you could argue that he was the better player in the second. What that gave Chapo Valov was a real understanding that, okay, I'm not a kid anymore. Okay, I can go toe to toe with these guys, and I can do it. And I mean, it was all the stars aligned for him to fail in Toronto. But since, he has really elevated his game, and there is a confidence and swag in him right now that I have never seen before in his career. F1's drive to survive on Netflix has brought in a whole new group of fans to a sport that we would see, but we really didn't know what was happening behind the curtains, and people have loved that. The PGA's jumping on board. They're going to do the same thing. Is the ATP, is the WTA not tailor-made for something like this? It sure is. It sure is. And I'll tell you what, man, I, I just can't understand for the life of me why the CFL wouldn't do this too, Scotty. This is what people want. People want a peek behind the curtain. People want to go where they cannot see and cannot feel and cannot touch. People want storylines and drama. They want the goth. They want to know who the villains are, who the heroes are, and they want to know who hates one another and who likes one another. And when you can develop those kind of storylines, the game only sells so much to so many people. But suddenly rip that curtain and see what's going on back there, that changes the entire dynamic of just how vast your total audience can be. 
Well, and I think the key with those style series and documentaries or rashes, you know, sometimes we'll see official NHL or official productions by a sports league and they feel very sanitized, right? And with Drive to Survive, it doesn't feel sanitized. It feels like you are getting a legitimate peek behind the curtain. And that's always my question. It's great. Okay, PGA Tour says they're going to do it. But are they actually willing to air some of the dirty laundry? Because I think that's what it takes to make these stories a success. Well, I think if it's up to Kupka and DeChambeau, they're already doing it. Um, but NFL Films is the same, right? Hard knocks. We think we're seeing what's going on, but not really. The team has to approve everything that that uh, sees the light of day. So the real good stuff is actually on the cutting room floor. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately, that's, that's probably always going to be the case. But you, you mentioned the CFL there, and I did want to ask you about the Edmonton Elks and their new schedule. Of course, they had the game postponed because of their COVID outbreak. Now, later in the season, they're going to have to play three road games in a span of seven days, and that includes traveling really back and forth across the country in that stretch. Is that the right move by the CFL? Well, of course it isn't. I mean, tell me what part of that whole thing is responsible. Tell me what part of that whole thing shows any kind of regard for player health and safety. Show and tell me how with two off days between games changing time zones, you're going to have players ready to play a professional football game. Show and tell me how that can be possible, let alone three and seven. At that stage of the season, when their bodies are completely banged up, to ask that of those players is just wrong. I'm with you, Arash, and we talk about this all the time in the NFL, just the difficulty going from Sunday to Thursday, and that's once a year. And we're talking about three games in seven days. And, hey, Canada's men's soccer team is going to play three games in seven days. The level of physical toll that it will take on their bodies is far different than a collision sport like football. I'm with you. A this violent collision oh, sport. Yeah, it's a car crash every single play. We know that. We know that by now. Anybody who watches the sport knows that. I know people don't want to miss checks. I get that. But with all due respect, and with all due respect to the integrity of the standings and each competition, I know the PA would have had to have been on board with this to say, okay, and and the Elks themselves, okay, we're going to do this. But, man, in this particular case, a forfeiture would have been the obvious solution. Or if you're going to try to go down this road, at at some point you can't be beholden to your broadcast partners. And, And this isn't me trying to rip the other network, but move a game back here. Move a game a little bit further there. Give these players a chance. Why not have the foresight to have an extra week at the end of the schedule before the playoffs to have as a buffer just in case something happened. It's a pandemic after all. I'm with you. What, what, what they're asking these players to do is fundamentally wrong, irresponsible, dangerous. And that's just that it's, that's just, you know, those are just a few bullet points right off the top of the page before peeling back any kind of layer on it. While we're talking CFL, Labor Day, it's always an interesting time of the year. It's a time when everybody around the country, I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people around the country tune in for these games. What has struck you early about this CFL season? Well, what struck me is the team that's going to be the healthiest is going to be the team that's going to win. Uh, you know, we're already seeing injuries all over the place, and the team that has been healthy 
Saskatchewan has looked okay. Winnipeg has looked okay. Hamilton has not. BC didn't when Mike Riley wasn't there. Um, I think Hamilton's going to be okay in the end, you know, in the wash. But I thought what was most predictable is what we're seeing right before our eyes is Calgary is just a reputation team. There's this belief that because you have Huffnagel, Dickinson, and Bo Levi, that the Stamps are going to be the Stamps. Well, which of those receivers scares you? Which of those offensive linemen can actually block for a quarterback with a broken fibula? What's of their pass rush? What's of their secondary? Yeah, they wear the same colors and they have the same people in charge. But to me, coming into this season, Calgary was a reputation team and nothing else. And I think they're showing that right now. You tweeted out a picture earlier today of a team photo, which you were a part of because you were part of the Ottawa Renegades back in the day. I'm saying this in all seriousness. I know it's cliche. Have you ever considered writing a book about that time in your life? If I did, nobody would believe it to be in the nonfiction aisle of the bookstore or the website or wherever people buy books from these days. <laughs> you know, they were canceling the ice order at training camp because they're like, why are we paying for people to make strength? They were canceling the Advil order saying we're not paying for people's hangover remedies. They were limiting what kind of food could be eaten in the cafeteria during training camp. They didn't understand why there, if there were 46 players on the active roster What's the need to have 80 helmets in the facility? Good time, Scotty. <laughs> it's so amazing. <laughs> and I only know a, like a slight bit of behind that curtain because I was covering the league and I met you during that time when you were with Ottawa and I was there for the Grey Cup in 2004. But even the fraction I know compared to you, Arash, it makes me chuckle every single time. Why do we have a third-string quarterback? <laughs> oh, okay. That's how it is, huh? Man, no, thanks. It was a gem. It was a gem. Hey, one day when you're ready to to just spin some yarns about what happened there back in the day, let me know. We'll book a solid hour, and we'll just let you go with some of the stories, okay? There you go. There you go. And if we played the, is he telling the truth or is he stretching the truth? I swear I'm telling the truth each time, and you wouldn't believe half the stuff I said. Beautiful. Let's do it. Arash, have a great long weekend. We appreciate your time. Enjoy everything that's going on in the world of sports, and we look forward to doing it again soon. You got it. Happy long weekend, guys. You as well. That's Arash Madani joining us here today. That franchise, man. That's fantastic. Oh, man. And anyone who was around following the CFL at that time probably knows a little bit about it. Arash will tell you tales of just what a clown show it was and – Man. Why why do we need extra helmets is a good one. That is <laughs> that is very, very special for a professional football team. Why do we need all these extra helmets? Woo! That's a good one. Imagine questioning your staff when your staff has to go buy ice for yeah. the drinks. Yeah. That's uh <laughs> Not like cocktails, but like for the no. water jugs yeah. and for like the we, electrolyte we, drinks that you're going to be using. Yeah, we need ice. We need to keep that cool. It's important for the play. Well, hold on a second. I'm checking out whoa, the ice. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow down here. Slow <laughs> down here. Uh, it's incredible. I'm sorry, but it is the term of the week. When I saw the schedule come out for the Elks late in the season, three games in seven days, Bishop Sycamore is all I could think of. We just ripped yeah. this high school team for having their kids play twice in three days, and we're going to see professional athletes play 
three times in seven days at the end of this season? Are you kidding me? And the travel, the travel, Scotty, is crazy in there, right? I believe it's first game in Saskatchewan, then Toronto, then BC. Yeah. That's... That's a that's cross continent travel. Those are no there's no easy bus trips there. That's major major travel in between those games. Man, and th- to me there is a better solution in there and I know it disrupts part of your broadcast schedule and you might have to move some things around and say to certain teams, "Look, we need you to push your game back by a day." The last game for example in that in that three game and seven day stretch for the Elks is the season finale at BC Place. Well, there's nothing booked the next day at BC Place. And right now it's scheduled for a Friday. And, hey, I know that it means other teams have to adapt and venue. Sorry, these are pretty special circumstances. If you're going to actually try to fit this game in and with a straight face say we do care about the health and safety of our players, these are the types of moves you're going to have to make. Yeah, and, I mean, even even something like, you know, moving the first game in that run – forward a day right and moving the last game back a day okay it's not ideal but it helps right it, it just feels I, I'm, I'll be curious to see if they actually go through with it as as currently planned because it is unlike anything we've seen in professional football before it's Scott Rental and Jamie Dodd one hour down lots to come here Elliot Friedman he has been speaking this morning you will hear from him next segment as well John Herdman we'll talk some NFL lots of text coming in I want to get to that as well And I want to know what you think when you see this in the morning. Tell you what it is next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Their stuff always has a throwback feel to it, but it's actually new, and it's new rock, and it qualifies as new rock. And if new rock is your jam, stay plugged in with the new rock playlist on Apple Music. It's always being updated. Best new bands, best new rock. You can add tracks right to your library for offline listening. Listen to the New Rock playlist on Apple Music. Hour number two on this Friday as we guide you into the long weekend. Thanks for participating in the journey. 960, 960, 650, 650. Sometimes, Jamie, we get the text onto the air. Other times we respond when we can off air. We do our best to interact with our listeners. Yeah, we try to be, you know, we're, we're, we're available. We're accessible. It's about conversation. We're trying to facilitate that. And believe me, there are plenty of things we disagree with. And oh, yeah. plenty of things our listeners disagree <laughs> on with us. And I have seen many of those texts today, and that's fine. That's okay. We encourage debate on this program. We don't all have to leave here saying, singing from the exact same hymn book with our opinions at the end of the day. We encourage debate. It makes things more fun. I want your honest reaction here, Jamie. All right. As a fan, okay, not as a broadcaster, as a fan, when you wake up in the morning, You open your computer. You're on social media. It's part of our job. I think a lot of our listeners are on social media. When you open up social media and you see one of your favorite players from whatever sport trending, what is your first reaction? Is it more, I wonder what this is? Or is it more, "Uh uh-oh, this can't be good? Honestly, probably uh uh-oh. And it would would depend on the player a little bit, right? There's some players that you know – have maybe more of a tendency to get themselves into uh-oh situations, right? So you might be worried for that reason. If, you know, it could be something, like if I woke up and saw that Quinn Hughes was trending, for example, I, my immediate reaction would be, oh, I wonder if he signed his deal, right? Because there's there's a reason he might plausibly be trending. But if it's just somebody out of the blue trending for no reason you can think of off the top of your head, yeah, I, I lean to, ooh, I don't know if that's going to be good. Okay, so here's the word. Here's the name that was trending this morning that I had to click on. It was Kachuk. What's your initial reaction to seeing Kachuk? 
trending. Well, so I know what it is related to now because I've I've read the story and I've seen the updates. But yeah, if you're let's say a Calgary Flames fan, you might click on that. Oh, is there a trade? Is there some news? Has he said something? Probably you're not like probably if he's trending, it's not great. And I, I believe in this case it was Brady Kachuk trending, and probably for a reason that Senators fans aren't crazy about. But it could have been a really good reason because Brady Kachuk along with yep. Drake Batherson, when you woke up this morning, those were the two players, if you're a Senators fan, that you knew you needed to get under contract. And as you and I both referenced yesterday, this is part of the dance. These contracts from RFAs, they filter in throughout the month of September. It's only once you get to the point of training camp holdout, frustration being voiced by one or both sides. That's when you actually start to worry. And, of course, there's that offer sheet possibility, which is lingering. We get to find out tomorrow, by the way. We get to find out tomorrow if Montreal decides to match or whether Carolina, in fact, has itself a new player. We can't get those details to the weekend. I don't think Montreal is going to expedite that process for us here. So you're right. It was Brady Kachuk, so that could have meant a new deal for Brady Kachuk. It wasn't that at all. So perhaps your initial inclination was the right one, Jamie. Sean Simpson, who works for the Three Letter Network and the radio station there, former National Hockey Leader, said this. My source tells me frustration has set in with the Kachuk camp. Brady is trying to stay positive but doesn't understand why it's taking so long I asked what has been offered, and it was termed they have not received a legitimate offer from the Sens. So not what you want to hear. Not what you want to hear if you're an Ottawa Senators fan hoping for a big long-term deal for Brady Kachuk, right? And they did get one piece of business done today Mm -hmm. with their other RFA, which we can get into a little bit, Drake Batherson. But the Brady Kachuk one's going to be more expensive, obviously. And there's always the question with the Ottawa Senators, are they actually going to commit the kind of money that it's going to take to keep Brady Kachuk around. Has money been a question with them? In yeah. the past? <laughs> I can't remember. I'd have to, I'd have, what, they're, they, have, they have solid, stable ownership, right? Right? I, oh, yeah. I think so in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. Well, I can tell you this. He's solid in the sense that he's not selling the team. He's solid in <laughs> no. that way. No. Yeah, he's not going anywhere. <laughs> Drake Batherson had a really good year last year. Drake Batherson had 17 goals, 17 assists. That makes 34, and that was just in... 56 games, so they paid him a little more for that production early. They're giving him a shade under $5 million. It's almost $5 million. It's 4.975. They did give him the term, however, so he gets that guarantee. We've seen a lot of players that maybe wouldn't have opted for term or we wouldn't have thought opt for term. Maybe just because of the world where we're at right now, there have been more players that have decided, I'll jump at that security, thank you very much, rather than wait to see what's ahead by going the bridge route. And no surprise, this is the case for a lot of these style of contracts, but it is backloaded. So just from a salary perspective, year one, only 2.5, year two, 3.5. It jumps all the way up to just under 5.5. It's 5.4 in year three, finishes at 6.5. But if you're a, a Sens pessimist, you might look at that and say, okay, the actual money outlay isn't bad in year one, in year two. But I wonder if when that salary jumps up going into year three, if the phone call comes from Eugene Melnick and, uh, hey, actually, can we can we maybe see if this guy, what this guy's uh, value is around the league? Because I, I don't want to pay him 5.4. Look, maybe that's unfair, but that's always going to be the conversation around the Senators, right? Okay, they gave him the deal, but when, that's, when that salary jumps up, are they actually going to be willing to cut the check? It's always a, a tricky conversation with fans because – They like their favorite players, and they most specifically like their favorite young players, but they also don't want to see those players get too much 
So it swings back and forth between the player and the team, and ultimately fans kind of side with their team, and they want their players on team-friendly deals. Everybody wants that. I understand exactly why. In Ottawa's case, if the one piece of news hadn't been delivered today, and you're a Sens fan, you're feeling good about this. Hey, there were two guys out there. One of them's done. This is a deal I can live with. And that means all they got to do is get Brady Kachuk under contract, and you take a quick look at the cap space available, and there's so much of it. There's so, there's so much, much of, it. of it. There's over $24 million available for this coming season, and yeah, there'll be contracts down the road, but $24 million, well, you, as long as it's reasonable, this should be fine, and we'll still yeah. have lots of cap space. But when you pair it with that other piece of news, well, the Kachuk camp not too happy right now. That's where the frustration sets in because you go, okay, I know we don't want to have some sort of albatross of a contract on the books, but, man, look at this cap space. Just pay the kid. He's our captain. That's the guy who's going to be wearing the C for a long time here. Well, and the thing with the Senators is, you know, you look at the situation in Vancouver with Pedersen and Hughes. Okay, it's, well, there's two conversations. There's one, like, have the Canucks painted themselves into a corner where they have to go really short term because they don't have the cap space? But then also, as you said, yeah, fans want players to get their due and get their money, but they also want to make sure, okay, it's not too much, you're not overpaying them, so you're not, you know, compromising the future salary cap position. With the Senators, they're never going to spend to the cap. So like, go ahead, over overpay Brady Kachuk by two million a year. What? That's not gonna that's that's not gonna get you close to the salary cap. They're never gonna be a cap team, right? So if you're a fan, you're you're even more saying just get it done because it's not like it's gonna compromise your ability to go out and get players under the salary cap. Now the total salary outlay, that's a different thing, but it, it's just such a strange situation. There's nothing preventing them you would think, from giving a big money long-term deal to Brady Kachuk because they don't have to worry about the salary cap. It's just not a part of, of their concerns in Ottawa. And yet we all know what is preventing them from getting yep. that done. Yep. Eugene, Eugene Melnick. And again, this is the this is the back and forth that fans go through because they do want team-friendly deals. And if Matthew Kachuk comes in with term on his contract, and yes, I know he's not the captain yet. He's going to be their captain. We all know that's the mold that he's in, and that's what Senators fans want, and so they should. If they get him in at a team-friendly deal, everybody's going to be happy at the end of the day. But when you were talking about players, I'm going to use the word, and there's people who are going to text in about it, that you consider foundational, Jamie. <laughs> yes. And Brady Kachuk is considered <laughs> foundational in Ottawa. You pay a little more for that. You don't have yep. to pay every last dollar. But there's value outside of just, hey, here's the comp. Sometimes it's not just, what what is this guy worth compared to other players around the league? What is he worth to us? Yeah. And here's the thing. And, and if I was Brady Kachuk or his agent or his representation, it's not as if Ottawa has never done the big long-term deal. They gave it to Thomas Shabbat, right? That's a really nice deal. It's not, it's not at the high, high end of defensemen. But for a defenseman coming off his ELC... That's a massive deal they gave to Thomas Shabbat. So you're willing to do it. It's not as if you've never done it and it's just team policy that you don't give out those kinds of deals. You have done it. Why not for me? Why not for a player, as you say, Scotty, that is the foundational piece of your team, is going to be the next captain, is going to be one of your best, one of, if not your best forwards for a long time, right? So it's... Man, it's such a tricky situation. They really don't have a good excuse not to pay him the money. They have the cap space. They have the, you know, they've done it for Thomas Shabbat in the past. The only excuse is our owner's cheap. But Brady Kachuk's going to say, well, that's your problem, not mine. 
your comparison to Vancouver was a good one because they sit there with the two RFAs, but they have to make the math work. That's not the yep. problem in Ottawa. That's not the problem at all in Ottawa. Not at all. That doesn't mean you go throwing around money like you're never going to run out of it and that cap space isn't valuable. But in Vancouver, okay, how are we going to make this math work? And we're going to have to make yep. it work for a while. And, and here are the constraints. And that's Vancouver's fault. Like Vancouver put themselves in that situation yep. with everything but the Roberto Luongo cap hit. It's a little bit different situation in Ottawa. I can only imagine the frustration of Senators fans when they see the report that Brady Kachuk's camp is frustrated. Ultimately, they'll be just fine with it if he comes in at a deal that they find reasonable and he's ready to go and he's not missing any time in camp. But that's just an example of a situation because everything everybody thinks it only happens to them, right, Jamie? That's, it's only us. You don't think Minnesota Wild fans are sitting there going, oh. can you just get the Kirill Kaprizov deal done? Can you just make that yeah. happen, please? Well, and they, I mean, look, I don't know how much stock to put in the threat of him going back to the KHL, right, if there's not an agreement done to his liking. But I think it's at least as realistic as the Elias Pettersson offer sheet idea, right? So, yeah, the fans in Minnesota have a potential worst-case scenario hanging over their head. And, again, I think that – look, I don't think it's going to happen, but I don't think an Elias Pettersson offer sheet is going to happen either. I think it's fair to be concerned about the risk of Kaprizov going back. So, yeah, it, there's a lot of other fans that are in this situation too. I saw it put out there today. It was a suggestion and an interesting one made by someone who's been a guest on this show, Rachel Dory. She put it out there today. Offer sheet Brady Kachuk. Go get him. Yeah. Find out whether Eugene is actually going to pay because it has nothing to do with cap space. It has everything to do with, and, and this is kind of what Montreal thought might happen with Carolina when they did the Sebastian Ajo offer sheet well that guy doesn't want to spend we know melnick doesn't want to spend so like what is what is his last stroke of the pen where he's okay with it and i i thought that would be interesting they've got the cap space no problem they could match no problem cap space wise but it comes down to whether the owner's actually willing to pay a certain amount of money for the player and the interesting thing with that is, okay, then you can get really creative with how you structure the offer sheet, right? Whether it's big upfront signing bonuses, whether it's actually a front-loaded contract, right? So the money is all coming in years one, in years two. You can think of a lot of different ways to make that as uncomfortable financially for Eugene Melnick as possible. Because the one thing we know about the Ottawa Senators is they hate spending money, right? So if you have an owner who says, yeah, I'll spend money for Brady Kachuk, and you can front-load as much of that money early as possible – you can really, really put the squeeze potentially on the Ottawa Senators and Eugene Melnick. And no surprise here, Scotty, in the 960-960 inbox, you know, we immediately got this text in. Flames should get Brady from the Sens. Yeah, I think Flames fans would be pretty excited about having the Kachuk brothers doing their thing in the lineup together. And maybe an offer sheet would be make, make sense from Calgary's perspective. I'm not surprised to see that from Calgary. Here's the other one. If you're Team Chaos, do you know what you want to see this weekend, Jamie? You want to see Montreal say, okay... You get your Sperry Kakinami. Also, we've offer sheeted Brady Kachuk. <laughs> that would be fantastic. Oh, man. Can you imagine? That would be so good. Be great. It'd be great given the geographical proximity, all of yep. that. It would be fantastic. Let's get to what they're saying. A couple of interesting news stories from the National Hockey League over the last 24 hours. We detailed them off the top of the show, Elliot Friedman broke the first one. That was about the COVID protocols, what they're going to look like, how stringent they're going to be in the National Hockey League. The other comes out today. Jeff Merrick was the first person I saw that had it today saying, yeah, 
They're going to come up with an official announcement that NHL players are going to the Olympics. That ended up coming to fruition today, and we know a lot more details under which they are going. One of them is what they're doing with insurance. Now, insurance costs for COVID, there's nobody picking those up. There's a pot of money that if somebody gets COVID at the Olympics, assuming that every single person who goes is adhering to the right protocols, there, there could be some compensation for NHL salary that would be lost on the other side of it. But the IIHF and the member federations are picking up the normal insurance costs associated with this event. Here's Elliot Freeman commenting on the issue of insurance. Well, I think the insurance issue, I think the players have known about that for a few weeks now, if not months, that you know they were kind of warned that there was going to be no COVID insurance here. And, you know, I, I do think there were people in the league and even people in the Players Association who weren't sure about that, who didn't necessarily think it was a good idea. But every time that that was presented to the best players, they all said, we don't care. Um, you know, the, the fact that they're still going, um, if you go back to the commissioner and the deputy commissioner's media conference before game one of the Stanley Cup final, the league made it very clear they weren't crazy about this. But they made a deal, and the players really want to go. It's important to them. So they they lived up to it. I think, Brent, if there was something that took a bit longer, it was some of the assurances that the leagues want the league wanted about, okay, you know, what has to happen here if things get worse? The the one thing that was really news to me today when I read the information was that um, you know, if if games get canceled in the NHL for COVID-related reasons and they can't reschedule them, the NHL can cancel participation. Uh, that was something I didn't hear until today. So I'm betting that that whole negotiation over that particular issue was was very big and loomed large over the process. Yeah, that's one of the important details in the memo that we saw put out there today for the players. And there's a bunch to skim over in there, Jamie, including, as Elliot Freeman just referenced, we can pull the shoot on this yeah. if the health and safety situation does not look good when we roll around to January and February. Well, and interestingly, not just if there's reason to be concerned for the player safety going to the Olympics, but if the NHL has been experiencing problems and thinks they need to reschedule a bunch of games in that two week, right? Then they can say, hey, listen, it's not you guys, it's us. We've been having the problems, but we're going to pull the cord anyways. Let's move on to some more reaction from the National Hockey League, if you will, or at least anticipation. Travis Green, head coach of the Vancouver Canucks, he was on Sportsnet 650 this morning on the morning program, and he was asked about a number of things, including this upcoming season. First time in a long time that you get a few of the normalcies back, and we're not all the way there yet as a society and certainly not as sporting events, specifically here in Canada. But Travis Green was asked about his anticipation for this coming season. Have a listen. You know, I, I think as far as the team goes, it's it's a, as excited as I've been coming back to a team uh, with the players we've added. I, I think there's there's been an evolution in our group from really in the last four years um, to to getting to this point. And then when you talk about the fans and, and being able to play in front of our fans again, I, I mean that's one of the great things that, about playing and coaching in the NHL is 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 the excitement level and the passion. Uh, not only in our game, but in the fan force. And, and <clears throat> when you talk about fans in Vancouver and Canada, it's, it's amazing when you get a chance to play and coach in front of uh, Canadian fans and, and just being the thought of being back in that scenario again, it, it feels like it's been so long. And, and I know there's a lot of other people that are excited, but I, I'm definitely 
uh, looking forward to that and, and having a training camp again is, uh, you know, it's important for probably more so for certain teams than others that, that have a lot of new players. And I would put us in, in that category. And uh, that's going to be nice to get back to that normal, a normal training camp where you can work your way through a lot of different things. There are a couple of things here, Jamie. One, how eager he is for the roster he currently has. And there is a lot of question yep. about Oliver Ekman Larson or how this is going to all come together. And I think most people concede Vancouver's upgraded its forward group, but there are big questions on the back end still as to how it's all going to work out with some of their signings and summing their some of their trades. But you know what coaches want. They want players they could care less about draft capital that's really nice to have and and sure down the road i hope this materializes but i am in the here and now (laughs) given the nature of coaching and turnover in the national hockey league give me national hockey league players that i can work with and they don't care about the salary either right they're they're not worried about you know year five and six of oliver ekman larson that's the farthest thing from travis green's mind his mind his what he's worried about and this is still a concern but what he's worried about is what can oel do for me this year year trying to win games trying to get into the playoffs and you're right from Travis Green's perspective I mean he must have been one of the biggest fans of all of what Jim Benning did in the offseason right I just look at the forward group in particular he has the ability to tinker and get creative now in ways he just didn't have he hasn't had in his tenure before right with not only bringing in a lot of new pieces but getting rid of a lot of pieces that just weren't working either so he can actually, you know, he, he can think of different solutions to problems. He can try different things out this year, and he's going to have a lot more creativity and flexibility than he's ever been able to have in the past. The other thing that strikes me, and fans, this won't have been lost on them, but National Hockey Leaguers and coaches, they know this, and they've been waiting for this for a long time. It's easy to forget because of everything that's happened, and we went through a Stanley Cup playoff run, and we saw fans in buildings. The bulk of teams in Canada have not played in front of anyone for a very yep. very long time Jamie the the first game back whatever that capacity is in Calgary or Edmonton or Vancouver places where fans haven't been allowed to attend that is going to be such a welcome relief for those players yeah I think it's going to be a really special moment for the players for the fans in the building too it's going to be really important again who knows what the capacity will look like but yeah you heard it just there from Travis Green right like I love coaching in front of fans and coaching in front of Canadian fans in particular it's been an awful long time since he's been able to do that right I went to those games last year not all of them but I was at some games last year so I know how antiseptic that environment was and most people will never realize that and they wish they could have been able to see it but I for one will be able to see the stark contrast and I understand the anticipation that he and those that are on his roster will have for this coming season more to come throughout the course of the show when it comes to comments for people Tom Brady had something really interesting to say and I want to dig into that next hour as well and from the National Football League Jamie there's been a trade and the Seattle Seahawks are involved I am zero surprised and I will tell you why next Bob Kravitz of the Athletics of the Athletica as well. He joins us next on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Less than a week away. Less than a week away until kickoff in the National Football League gets going on Thursday. It'll be Dallas. It'll be the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. We'll get you that Tom Brady audio a little bit later on in the program today. I mentioned the Seahawks have made a trade. Jamie, I'm not surprised. I'll tell you why in a minute. You tell me, because you are a Seahawks fan. The Seahawks have traded one of their cornerbacks. They've traded Akella Witherspoon to the Pittsburgh Steelers. They get a 2023 fifth-round pick in return. Your thoughts? 
Yeah, not surprised because they've been kind of shuffling things around and making moves in the secondary, specifically at the cornerback position. So they've brought in some bodies. Not surprised to see somebody heading for the exit door now. Well, I'll tell you why I'm not surprised with this particular player. Because I was surprised when they signed him. I really was. And you know where my affinity lies in the National Football League. So I've seen a lot of Akella Witherspoon. And there are some things he can do that are pretty beneficial to a secondary. But Akello Witherspoon plays corner in a way that is not like the Seahawks generally like their corners to play. They like bruising corners who bring a little bit of a physical element. And you're not going to recreate the Legion of Boom. The NFL has changed. It's really tough to find that style of quarterback. And if you have one, you're not letting him go. And I'm talking about the big, rangy, physical corners. Brandon Browner was on the one side. Richard Sherman obviously brought a skill to his game, but he'd get after you on the line as well. It's really tough to find those guys, but that's the style of corner that Pete Carroll would like to employ on his defense. That's not a Kella Witherspoon. Yeah, so you're right. It's just not a system fit for what they want to do. And it's not about recreating what they had in, as you said, you know, Richard Sherman and Brandon Browner or anything like that, but at least maybe they feel they can find someone who – Fits the mold they're looking for a cornerback a little bit better. Witherspoon got beat up by DJ Reed at corner. And while DJ Reed isn't what I mentioned with Browner or in his heyday, of course, and, and Richard Sherman, DJ Reed, he'll at least break a little thump now and then. That's not what Witherspoon's going to do. Witherspoon plays the position more like a, a low end or a, a Marcus Peters light. Like Akello Witherspoon's out there to ball hawk, and he's going to take some chances at times. And that's not something they love in Seattle. Yeah, and the other thing they did, of course, as I mentioned, they brought in Sidney Jones. They traded yes. a draft pick for him, and I think, you know, they traded a sixth-round pick for Sidney Jones. They're getting a fifth-round pick for Akella Witherspoon, so they're moving up the draft board a little bit as well. Maybe they like Sidney Jones a little bit more than what Witherspoon brings, so no big surprise here to see him going out. Not that we're doing a full-on NFL preview show today, but since we're talking about your team, where do you think the Seahawks stack up in the NFC West right now? Where do you think they finish? Let's just assume general health for all four teams. So I'm a little lower on the Seahawks, and I think a lot of people are, because I do have major questions about their defense and how it's going to look this year. You know, And that's the secondary and the shuffling they've done right recently as part of that. If I had to choose, I might choose third after the Niners and after the Rams. Like a close third, but third right now. Yeah, it sounds like a biased take, and and you can pretty easily accuse me of that, but I do think the Niners will end up on top of that division, and then it's a debate as to whether it's the Rams or the Seahawks coming second. To me, I don't have the Cardinals as high as some other people do. I know they've brought in some veterans to bolster that line. It still remains the toughest division in football until proven otherwise. We're going to jump over to the AFC, however. We're going to talk some Indianapolis Colts here. A lot of questions about that team. They've made some significant changes. Bob Kravitz of The Athletic, he covers the Colts and has for quite some time. He joins us here today. Bob, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? I'm doing fine, thank you. Bob, is it fair to say, before we get into the X's and O's and, and how this all shapes up under Frank Reich, is it fair to say that right now in Indianapolis and with Colts fans, the biggest issue surrounding them is the issue of vaccination against COVID-19 absolutely. and this roster? That's absolutely it, because <clears throat> they are one of the lowest, if not the lowest, uh, vaccinated teams in the uh, National Football League, and most of their star players are not vaccinated 
including um, uh, including Carson Wentz, uh, T.Y. Hilton, uh, Darius Leonard. The list goes on. Zach Pascal, and so you know the whole ability or availability question is going to be one that's going to be it's going to be an issue every week with this team. And you know, it, like uh, Carson Wentz just missed five days of practice because he was a close contact. What if that happens on the Thursday before a game? So uh, I think that is far and away the biggest issue with the Colts. They've got a good team. They've got good personnel. They've got good coaching. But uh, because of some decisions that have been made by individual players, uh, I think it's going to be an an issue that's going to last all season long and may actually uh, be the thing that gets in their way uh, when, when, you know, moving forward depending on what some of these players choose to do. And this isn't about having a debate about vaccination. This is about the rules that are in place, and there is a distinct competitive advantage to having a vaccinated roster this year in the NFL compared to an unvaccinated roster, or at least a portion that is unvaccinated. Interesting comments from Darius Leonard, star linebacker, yesterday, a guy who has said, I'm not vaccinated, but... Interesting to see him consider the options a little more closely right now, given what he's learning along the way. Well, it's, it's hard to imagine that there's any more information that can come out that's going to change his mind or the minds of any of these guys. You know, I heard, uh, I, in fact, I was the one who asked uh, Darius the question, and he said, look, you know, I'm waiting for more information. I'm just sitting there thinking, what, you need Dr. Fauci to come to your house? make a house call and lay out all the, all the numbers for you. I mean, if you don't think the information is out there, uh, then I'm not sure you're looking in the right place. Uh, we heard uh, general manager in Indianapolis, Chris Ballard, come out earlier this week and talk about, you know, look, there's consequences to not being vaccinated. Overall, you know, how would you say that Frank Reich, the head coach, and the GM Ballard have handled the situation surrounding the Colts on this issue? Yeah, I think they've they've done it very respectfully. You know, I I've heard people say, "What's a well, it's a failure of leadership." Well, the owner, the GM, and the coach have all come out and said as forcefully as they possibly can that you know they think that everybody should be vaccinated. This is going to be a real issue as far as the competitive disadvantage goes. So, I I think they've handled it fine. They've left it. And, I mean, you can't force these guys to do something that where, that where you know, collectively bargained, they do have this choice. Now, we can disagree from now till the cows come home as to whether that's a smart uh, decision. But, uh, you know, I, I think the Colts have tried to treat their guys like men. And, again, you can't force them to get vaccinated if they choose not to. Putting the vaccination situation aside and looking what could play out on the field, assuming you know mm. players are healthy and available for most of the year, how will this offense look different, if at all, with Carson Wentz under center compared to what we saw with Phillip Rivers running the show last season? Well, obviously, uh, Carson Wentz is a good athlete. He can run. He, he can extend plays. Um, you know, I think you will see a lot more in the way of RPOs, uh, which is something that Frank Reich loves but really wasn't able to do it as often um, with, with uh, uh, Phillip Rivers because Phillip doesn't give you that, that run option, really, I mean, at all. So I, I think it's going to be a – I think they're going to be able to use more of the, uh, the playbook 
than they they ever were before, either with uh, Jacoby Brissett or uh, or Philip Rivers. Bob Kravitz is with the Athletic. He covers the Indianapolis Colts, and he joins us today on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. It's difficult to evaluate in preseason because the only thing that really matters is how Carson Wentz plays once the real lights are on and these games count for real. But watching him last season, his mechanics were all over the place. Footwork in particular was awful. From what you've been able to see, has it been cleaned up a lot? Do you see a confident player? I do. I do. I mean, look, he hasn't practiced a lot. He practiced the first two two days uh, of camp, then, then needed the surgery and came back for about a week, and then he had five days uh, out with the close contact with COVID. So we haven't seen him a ton. But from what we've seen and what we're hearing from Frank Reich is that he's cleaned up a lot of the, of the, the technical stuff that he needed to, and uh, he's looked really, really good. Now, it may just be that compared to Jacob Eason and Sam Ellinger, he looks phenomenal, but he looks like he looks like an NFL quarterback who's ready for the season to me i mean he's gonna miss he's missed you know more practice than you would like especially for a quarterback with a new team but uh i i think he's gonna be ready to go the big issue is again the vaccine issue which speaks to their availability and the fact they've got five really tough games to start the season Sam Ellinger lost to an injury, so he won't be a part of this for at least the beginning of the season. He was going to be the primary backup, and he looked like he was performing pretty well in the preseason opportunities that he got. Because of that and because Cam Newton was released this week, there were some that speculated maybe Indianapolis would be a landing spot. Do you see any fit there whatsoever? I don't, because I I think with Cam Newton, you really have to change your offense a lot, Um, and, and that's not something I think they're interested in doing. Uh, this late in, in, in the season or in the preseason. Uh, look, Jacob Eason is their guy as the backup. I mean, Ellinger was losing that battle for the backup spot. Uh, Eason's going to be their guy. Uh, I think that that's, uh, th- that's a, uh, you know, a risk, you know, with a rookie. Um, so they better hope that Carson Wentz can stay, you know, free and clear of the COVID situation and also stay healthy, um, uh, you know, football-wise, because he has had some uh, issues in the last uh, in, in the last couple of years with his with uh, his health. And Bob, I find the Carson Wentz situation really interesting because you know we've seen what his ceiling can be in past years in Philadelphia, right? Sure. Where he played parts of the season at a near MVP level, but you know you also look at his more recent performance and then the talent that surrounds him on this on this Colts roster they've got a lot of really good players a great defense a great offensive line and all of that just how good do they need Carson Wentz to be in order to be a competitive team this year i think that they just need it to be pretty good you know just like like Philip Rivers you know they had a great offensive line they had a terrific running game Jonathan Taylor who uh you know had a great second half of the season looks like an absolute beast in training camp, uh, Naheem Hines is another nice weapon for them. You know, I, I think they've got some issues at wide receiver. We don't really know uh, about Paris Campbell and some other guys. And now T.Y. Hilton is out at least three games with, with a neck injury. Um, but I, I don't think they need him to be great. I think they need him to be good. And if he, if he can manage that and protect the football and be something more than a game manager, but, you know, not a – not play hero ball, I think they'll be just fine. 
You mentioned the running back. Jonathan Taylor is one of the key pieces in the offense. What do you expect to see from the running back in his second NFL season? I could see him going for 1,500 yards. I really could. I could see him going. I could see him leading the league in rushing. He looks that good. Uh, you know, he, he went for over 1,000 last year and really didn't do anything the first half of the year. I mean, he got all his yards pretty much in the last half to, to three-quarters of the season. So, uh, you know, with the offensive line, of course, they're, uh, they're left tackle right now. Anthony Costanzo retired. They uh, brought in Jake Fisher, uh, Eric Fisher, excuse me, and uh, he's, he's out for a couple more weeks. So they're trying to, you know, plug that hole in the dike for a couple of weeks until Fisher comes back. But once they do, I think this running game is going to be really, really good. People want to see how that passing game looks as well. It won't have T.Y. Hilton for quite some time out with injury. Really weird year for him last year. I know a lot of people said, well, T.Y. Hilton's done, and then he had a resurgence in the back half of the season. What does that receiving core look like without T.Y. Hilton in it right now? Yeah, I think it's untested more than anything. I mean, you know, Michael Pittman had a really good uh, first year. Um, but, you know, Paris Campbell has been out two years in a row with injuries. Um, you know, tight end situation is, is, is okay. You know, Jack Doyle, uh, Mo Alley-Cox, uh, they got a rookie named Colin Gr- uh, Granson. I, you know, I, I think it's an okay wide receiver group. Uh, Zach Pascal is another nice player. He's a good third wide receiver. But right now they don't have an alpha. They don't have somebody that they can absolutely go to on third and 12. And I'm not saying that T.Y. was that guy. Believe me, he hasn't been that guy in two, three years. Frankly, I was surprised they brought him back. I thought they were—they uh, made the mistake of becoming sentimental, and I just don't think you'd be sentimental in this game. But uh, yeah, I think they're going to—you know—they got a lot of depth, but I don't know if they have that alpha dog uh, in their uh, wide receiving core. Bob Kravitz covers the Indianapolis Colts for the Athletic, and he joins us for a few more minutes here today on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. With all due respect, and I'm not trying to make a pun here, this looks like a two-horse race in this division between the Colts and the Titans. It's a mess in Houston. Jacksonville's young. How do you personally believe Indy stacks up against Tennessee? Well, uh, look, I, all things being equal, I think Tennessee's got the better team. Uh, now the Colts are much better defensively than Tennessee is defensively. I, I, I know it sounds crazy, and I know it sounds like I'm – beating a dead horse here, but I, I really think that the COVID situation is going to go a long way toward determining who wins the AFC South. If, if the Colts, who are, again, uh, one of the lowest, if not the lowest, vaccinated teams in the league, if they're missing Carson Wentz, if they're missing Darius Leonard, if they're missing T.Y. Hilton, I mean, it's, it's going to be tough to stay up with the Tennessee Titans who are to, I mean, it is definitely a competitive disadvantage. Uh, based on the two teams, I would say probably the Tennessee is slightly better team, but I could certainly see uh, the Colts, you know, winning the division. Uh, I think they got a puncher's chance and certainly uh, a very good chance of making the wild card. Well, I'm glad you brought up Darius Leonard, Bob, because I think outside of the market, when we're talking about the Colts and COVID, a lot of the focus has been on Carson Wentz, but I mean, Darius Leonard, he's one of the best defensive players in the league. He gets the massive new extension this offseason. For those of us who maybe don't get to watch and zero in on him week in, week out, what makes him so special as a defender? Well, he, he's just a great off-the-ball 
you know, uh, uh, Will Will linebacker um, who just he, he he's great in coverage. He's good against the run. He he covers the entire width of the field. Uh, just just a great great athlete. A guy who uh, works hard in the film room and uh, understands what where he needs to be when he needs to be there. So and and, and he's he's this team's juice. You know he's he's their uh, emotional leader, especially on defense. So you know if heaven forbid he misses some games because of this uh, COVID situation the Colts are going to be a much diminished team. Well, there's a lot of eyes on Indy right now, and I don't think that's changing anytime soon. Bob, thank you very much for taking the time today. Enjoy the season and NFL kickoff next week. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Be well. You as well. That is Bob Kravitz of The Athletic, as mentioned, covers the Colts. It really is two teams in that division. It would be a shock if Houston or Jacksonville was competitive whatsoever this year. Completely different situations, but... If you follow the National Football League, you understand why. Tennessee's really interesting. Indy's really interesting. A part of it has to do with everything he's talking about here. Agree, disagree. The rules are the rules. And Indy has put itself right now in a competitive disadvantage relative to other teams in the National Football League. And again, you can fight the rules all you want, but that's what the NFL is going with. That's not going to change. Well, and again, it's it's not just that, you know, you look at it as a percentage. Oh, this percentage of the team is vaccinated. This this percentage isn't. But in Indianapolis's case, I mean, it's the starting quarterback and it's their best defensive player. And as and as Bob just said, they're not not just their best defensive leader, the juice, the emotional leader for that defense. The guy you just gave a you made him the highest paid linebacker in the NFL, right? Because he's that talented. They need those guys in the lineup week in, week out if they're going to challenge Tennessee for the division lead. So, you know, he said it a couple times in the course of our chat with him. Like, that's going, that could easily be the thing that completely derails this season because it's not as if you're missing, you know, your second wide receiver and your right guard. Okay, that's hard enough to overcome. You're potentially looking at missing key players this season if you're Indianapolis. And as we've talked about before, we're living in a different time, and a lot of this is viewed through the lens of fantasy football as well. So you kind of tend to forget about some parts of of a roster. Indies, when healthy and assuming there isn't COVID situation, like Indies, one of the most balanced teams yep. in football, assuming it gets relatively efficient quarterback play. And with Philip Rivers last year, that was somewhat of a question. It kind of stung them at at the very end, and and certainly will be going into this year with Carson Wentz, but Indy could have, should have won that playoff game in Buffalo last year. Like that's the quality of the team we're talking about here. If they can stay healthy, Tennessee is interesting for entirely different reasons. And, and Bob mentioned it there in the interview. I have no idea what we're going to get defensively from the Tennessee Titans, but fantasy football fans do not care. They really don't. This is a team that went and added Julio Jones in the offseason. It's got A.J. Brown, Derrick Henry, Ryan Tannehill having a good time chucking the ball around. Yeah, he'll have a great time there. But you're right. I think you make a great point about the balance of the Colts because – Outside of wide receiver, and depending on what you think about, think of it, Carson Wentz and his chances to bounce back this year, 
they have big time players at basically every position group, right? Like they've got Quentin Nelson on the offensive line, one of the best guards in the league. You know, DeForest Buckner on the defensive line. He's dominant at his position. Darius Leonard, they've got playmakers at the secondary. They have talent all over that roster. And I think it really comes down to for them one, can Carson Wentz be pretty good, which is what Bob Kravitz said, you know, that's kind of the level he needs to get to. It doesn't have to be an MVP candidate, just has to be pretty good. Can he be pretty good? And two, can everyone stay on the field? And can they avoid COVID derailing them? If they can, I think they've got a good chance at challenging Tennessee in that division. So there's seven playoff spots. The AFC is really difficult to handicap. How many teams do you say, okay, I'll lock them up as a playoff team right now. I'll put down whatever money you want. I could, I would put this. Kansas City is an obvious one. Outside yep. of Kansas City, which other teams would you lock in right now? Lock in, lock in, like putting big time money on the line. Probably only Buffalo, right? And, you know, I I know, okay, I look at Baltimore and Cleveland as having a really, really good opportunity as well. But, I mean, Lamar Jackson's not vaccinated, right? What if he's on the shelf for a certain period in Baltimore? That that could send their season off the rails. So, if you're like, gun to my head, I don't know. It might only be Kansas City and Buffalo. That's fair. That's fair because – Baltimore, despite playoff pedigree and every year in the race, Steelers are in there, and that's what they do year after year. They make the playoffs. Cleveland is a team on the rise and looked really good last year and almost dethroned Kansas City before they came out with their second consecutive AFC crown. That is just a tough division. I mean, you, you can make the argument that is the second toughest division in football behind the NFC West. Yeah, I think depending on what you think about the Steelers and Ben Roethlisberger this year, because I I do have questions about the Steelers, but your point is well made. All they do is make the playoffs. All they do is finish above 500 every year. I'm not necessarily willing to bet against that this year. And there's so many teams in the AFC, and this is why it's so difficult in that particular conference. There's so many teams that you think are close, but a couple things need to happen. Miami's one of those teams. Really good roster. Are they going to get the quarterback play? We talk about balance. They've got a lot of balance with that roster. New England's a curiosity. Some people still yep. think they're going to be down, but they're getting a bunch of players back. They added some talent. How are they going to do with a rookie quarterback? People expect the Chargers to take a step this season. There's a lot of teams that fit that mold. Even a team like the Denver Broncos, which, hey, they don't really have a quarterback. Teddy Bridgewater's at the controls. Don't feel great about that, but... Denver's defense should be Got legit. a good defense. Yeah, they should be legit yeah. once again, and they generally run run the ball really well. Denver's one of those teams. A wide receiver, like sure. yeah, I, you know, and really, you look around in the AFC. How many teams are there that you say, oh, no shot, no chance, they're going to be in the playoffs? Right, the Jets, the Bengals, the Jaguars, the Texans. That might be it. Everyone else, you can at least make a case for. Raiders are weird, aren't they? Like the Raiders so, are a oh, weird, man. a weird so team weird. to think so about. So weird. So many questions on the defensive side of the ball, and they made a lot of different changes there, and they knocked off the Chiefs last year. Like, they're just a weird team. Yeah, they are, and, you know, Derek Carr looked really good for stretches last season, right? They got playmakers. You know, Darren Waller, one of the best tight ends in the league. You know, Henry Ruggs going into his second year, the deep threat, the speed threat. Maybe he can be a little bit more impactful, but I I have no idea what to expect from that defense, really, in, in Vegas. Speaking of impactful, Our next guest qualifies as that. Chris Cuthbert, late addition to the program. We're glad he answered our call. At least we expect him to next. Play-by-play voice of Hockey Night in Canada. Talk a little CFL with him as well. It's coming up right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd.